Well, uh, tonight is uh, the topic of our series on Switch is, is lust. And obviously with a topic like that, you can go in a number of, uh, of different directions. But um, we're, we're looking at specific issues that dominate the human heart and life after the fall. And, and, and the list that we're going through um, is right out of the book of Colossians and, and really right out of life. It shouldn't be anything surprising. In fact, I think it's interesting that Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, which talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, when he talks about the work of the flesh, he says they are evident, they're manifest, meaning that they're common or they're plain for all to see. Whenever you see someone throw a temper tantrum, you don't have to go, huh, I wonder what's happening there. You know it's the flesh. You know it's, it's bad. On the flip side, whenever you see the fruit of the Spirit, the joy in someone's life that's not rooted in their circumstances but in God, you also recognize something unique, something special is, is going on there. And the topics that we're covering um, are things that everyone struggles with, believers and unbelievers. But for believers, which is why we're looking at Colossians, God has given us a new nature that's capable of putting off these old things, these old ways of life. Now, that, that just simply means not that we'll never, ever have them again, not that we'll never, ever fall to these, to these sins. It's, 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 the, um, it's not sinless perfection, but God has now given us the ability, the capacity to, to, to put on a new nature, to put on a new ways, I should say, because of the, uh, the new nature. And that's the ways of Christ. I can remember Dr. Jim Ferrickson um, just really being helpful in my first year of seminary, describing this reality of putting off, putting on the old man, the, the new man, the before salvation and after salvation. He said this reality is like, uh, uh, is described like a man with a, uh, as a television set. Prior to salvation was like the TV can only pick up really vile channels and it's, it's stuck with a remote that has no battery. So the channel list is only bad. And there's no way, there's no capacity to change the channel. You, you've, got the, you've got the remote, but there's no, there's no batteries in it. Um, and, and even if you could change the channel, everything on the channel list is, you know, is nothing but garbage. There's nothing good there. There's, there's none that does good. No, not one. But in Christ, we're given, we're given new channels, and we're also given uh, batteries for the remote. You can, you, you can still turn to the old channels, you can linger too long whenever you're surfing through, but you also have some good ones there. And our series that we're talking about is focused on, on helping us, increasing, uh, increasingly turning off the, the bad channels and turning on the right ones in our spiritual lives. Or as Colossians 3, 5 put it, um, we're, to, we're to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, what what is, what is of Adam? What is of the fallen nature? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, because these sins mark an unsaved person's life, the wrath of God is, is coming. In these, you once walked. You once lived your life in these things. They defined you when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. So you put off and then you put on as chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts and, and kindness, and, and you know the rest of the, rest of the verse. 
While God has given us the capacity to do this in salvation, you have to be intentional about it. Just because, as I said, going back to our analogy, just because you've got good channels on the, on the, the, uh, the guide and, and, and a remote that works, you still have to turn those on. You still have to be intentional or it's not going to, it's not going to happen. The channel list may be there, but if you don't pick up the remote and, and choose it in your, in your life, it, you, know, you won't look any different. And as believers, we must, we must put off, and we must put on, because the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you're not progressively becoming more like Christ, you're not saved. Now, I don't mean that that everyone looks the same. Everyone is in the same position of sanctification. But if you're not growing in holiness, the Bible says that there's there's no spiritual life in you. So as believers, we must be doing this. It's, It's imperative. It's It's important. So... So tonight what I want you to do is, is we're going to talk about the area of, of, of lust. I'm going to give you some practical theology. I think that will help you exchange lust for life. Because that's what Colossians tells us, tells us to do. And, and, and these three things that I'm going to walk through tonight, it just, this is helping me. It's topical, so it's helping me think through this, this issue of desire. Is all desire bad? Are things bad? Where is the issue? And then what do I do about it? What, what does God give me to battle in this, in this fallen world with still having unredeemed flesh? So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to, we, we have to understand creation's quality. If you're going to do battle as a believer biblically, you have to understand creation's quality. We're going to go there first in Genesis 1. You must, we must elude our flesh's capacity. Next we're going to go to James 1, very familiar passage, you know it. It's the path that leads to death. It's how we go from a, a, a natural desire all the way to separation and, and where the trigger point in there, when temptation becomes sin. We're going to walk through that, that paradigm tonight. And then we're going to look at, at where James goes next, which is we have to battle with the word's capacity. So the first thing you've got to do is understand, because right thinking produces right acting. Bad thinking brings about brings about bad acting. So the first thing we're going to do is look at creation's quality. So I'm going to invite you to to turn to 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 Genesis 1. We have to understand creation's quality. We got to understand and, and and the first thing I want you to say whenever you hear the word lust, lust versus desire, it's exactly the same word in the original language. Lust and desire is the, is the same word, but the context determine whether it's po- determines whether it's positive or negative. Whenever I say the word lust, you automatically know bad, right? Whenever I say the word desire, well, maybe bad, maybe good. I mean, there are plenty of things that we're supposed to desire, but we're not supposed to lust. It's the same, it's the same word because it, it, it's basically the same act depending upon the 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 object negative expressed negatively is, is lust positively is a desire but but not all desire is bad lust is is a, is 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 negative meaning to wrongly crave or to crave wrongly it's to crave the wrong things or or to crave too much of the of the right thing and desire is positive depending upon the object there are certain things we're supposed to desire and then what is our intent Whenever we desire that object, that has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, think about it. 
I hope as your pastor you you desire, you have a desire for God. You have a desire for His Word. You, you have a desire for spreading the gospel and winning people to Christ. I hope you have a desire for that. I mean, deep desire, not just, a, well, I, you know, okay, if that happens, it happens. You, you long for it. You desire it. It's, you're passionate about God. You're passionate about the Word. You're passionate about spreading the gospel. There, there's, that, there's that affection or emotion that goes along with, with your heart, and that moves you to action. God hopes you have a desire for His holiness. God tells you to have a desire for your husband or, or wife. He gives you the right target. And so emotion's not bad. Passion is not bad. It has to do with the object and the intent. And when desire becomes sinful, there is a disordering of things. And I think to properly understand lust and, and what we're to do about it, you first must think rightly about creation because that's the target. Lust is aimed at, at something that God has created. Something that God has created, and then our hearts take it. We, we, we're to put off lust. If we're to put off lust, lust is directed at something created, then we must see what God has said about, about His creation. So, Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us God's creation is good, and all things were made to display His glory. Here's the goodness of creation. Of course, we go to Genesis 1, and it's not a fairy tale, it's not a story, it's not a parable, it's an actual account. You weren't there, the greatest egghead scientist wasn't there, but God was there in the beginning, God, right? And he's declared that he has created. And then you're going to see all of the days of creation there, but there's a pattern I want you to, I want you to notice. Look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And God saw the light, and it was good. You see, the God said, and God saw, and then God draws a conclusion. God said, let there be light. There's the act of creation, and there was there was light. There's the source was God. There's the act, the action of creation. He spoke and it came into being out of nothing. And then in verse four, God draws a conclusion. He 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 saw the light and it was good. There's the quality of creation. Look at verse six. God said, "Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters." And let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made a firmament, divide the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. It's the same way of saying, and there was. In verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. Look at verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together and into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and gathered together the waters he called seas, and God saw, and it was good. Verse 11, God, God said, let the earth, and God, and it was so, and God saw that it was, it was good. There's a pattern there. And what I want you to see is God said, that's the source, and God saw it's the quality. It was good. 
God saw it was good. And you have the source, and you have the quality. And it's a declaration of creation's intrinsic quality. It's good. Um, look at Genesis 1.30, because here is the, the grand conclusion of, of all of, of, of creation. I'm sorry, verse 31. I probably got it wrong up here, too. Yep, I do, sorry. That's what you get for doing your own PowerPoints. Look at verse 31. Here's the summary of the creation narrative, at least this first section. Then God saw everything that he made, there's the source, and indeed it was very good. So you have this very good. You have this, this final conclusion. Overarching declaration about how God sees his creation. He sees everything he made. He beholds it. He wants us to behold it. And he declares it to be very good. Now, don't miss the behold part. He declares it's good. And that's the way he wants us to see his creation. God's creation is good. Do you understand that? God's creation is good. And in order to ever get to the place where we overcome the issue of, of lust, we have to understand that or we'll mistake the real enemy. The real enemy in dealing with lust or, or wrong desire is not creation. The issue is, is my heart because creation, what God has created, is good. That's what Paul is saying. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. It, I mean, everything is good. What God has made, yes, it's been tainted by the fall, but, it, but it's, it's, its intrinsic quality is, is good. So based upon what you, you find here in Genesis and in other places, you would have to declare that the issue is not creation. And that's a very important because I see a tendency in my own heart and in a lot of Christians to, as if creation is the problem in lust. And so they typically do one of two extremes. They either avoid or they or they totally accept they say well nothing matters and so i don't have to guard my heart at all or they withdraw you know they think some some way spirituality is you know is becoming the the monk in the you know the 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 non-colorful clothing that sits in the corner by himself eats paste and chants you know somehow that is how you reach spirituality God has given us all things to enjoy, and His creation is, is good. You go to one of two extremes. One extreme leads to becoming a true legalist, and the other is that you become a, a libertine. And both of them have, a, have, have in their roots a misunderstanding, I think, of God's, of God's creation. The enemy in the battle is, is not the creation. It's how our, fallen hearts, how our fallen hearts respond to it. I can remember Al Mohler being very helpful to me with this, specifically in the area of recognizing the beauty in another person, or as a man, specifically someone of the opposite sex. Moeller said, the, uh, he said, the beauty of a woman is not the issue. My heart's response to that beauty is the, is the issue. It's, it's not just the, the response itself, but the, but the way in which my heart responds. Our hearts are supposed to respond to the, to the beauty of, of God's creation. It's, it's God's glory that's being put on display. Whenever you see someone 
and you recognize the, the beauty in a person or the beauty in a building or, or the excellence in a sculpture or, or art or whatever it is, and, and it catches your attention, it's supposed to do that. It's the glory of God in creation. And we're supposed to respond to it. The issue is whenever I, whenever I take that and, 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 and turn it in the, in the wrong direction. That's what God intended. I'm supposed to notice that, that, that beauty. It's the way He wired us. We're to see God's glory in creation, and we're to give Him praise for it. We're to declare it good. We're to see it as God's, and we're to declare it's good. There's God's glory. I see God's glory. That's, that's good. Isn't that what Psalm 19 tells us that the purpose of creation is? Look at Psalm 19. The heavens, this is the created things, the, the heavens and the expanse of the firmament, what do they do? They declare the glory of God. And the, the expanse declares the works of His hands. And it goes on, on, and on all the time. Day unto day pours forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor there are words where their voice is not heard, their line has gone throughout, throughout all, of the, all of the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God. God intended creation, not just the, not just the heavens, but all of creation to, to declare His, His glory. Why? So God can be praised, so He can be enjoyed, so He can be given the glory that He deserves as our Creator. We're supposed to respond to the beauty of creation, just like God did when He saw everything He made, and it was good. What we're not to do is grasp that glory for ourselves and turn what is glorious into something that train our, our hearts to consume, and, and that's what you see in the fall. That's what Eve did with creation. Look at the fall. I want you to, to look over to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6. Now watch what the woman did. When the woman saw the tree... And it was good. That's exactly what she's supposed to do. That's what God did. God saw the creation, and he declared it good. Eve's okay at this point. And she saw that it was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now we've turned from God to, to self, and look at that next word, she grasped. She, she took. What was the problem? Just seeing it? No. It was to make her wise. She grasped God's glory for herself, and Adam followed, and we've been doing that ever since. So the human heart is supposed to recognize the glory of God in, his, in, in another human being. There's nothing wrong with that. But what the sinful heart does is wants to grasp it for themselves, and rather than give glory to God, abuse it and use it, use it wrongly. So first of all, you have to understand the, the quality of, uh, of creation. Secondly, you have to elude your flesh's capacity, or our flesh's capacity. So now I want you to turn them to James chapter 1. Creation is good. That's not the problem. So what is the problem? 
If you don't understand that creation is not good, you'll monkify your Christianity, and you don't want to do that. You want to glorify God, enjoy the good things that God has given. But you have to make sure that you keep the the glory toward the the giver and not place it in in just the gift. James chapter 1 verse 13 explains to us how to elude our flesh's capacity. Now, I won't go back through, you know, the way James breaks down, but I think it's interesting and it's helpful for us because James has been talking about about trials, and then he moves to this area of temptation, but the, but the original language, the word doesn't change. So how do we know that James turns from a trial to, to a temptation? Well, the context shows us, just like when lust is, is negative and desire is good, and it's the, it's the same, the same word. Look, if you would, at verse 13. Well, look back at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures testing. For when he has been approved, that means when he goes through that testing, enduring it, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who who love him. Now he's going to contrast. But let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. Now think about that. Let no one say when he's tested, I am tested by God. Is that the right way to take that? Does God test us? Sure, God brings testing in our lives. But what's what's James talking about? He says God doesn't tempt us. How do we know that? Well, the rest of the verse tells us, For God cannot be tempted by evil. And there's the context. Nor does He tempt anyone. So where's the issue? God doesn't... The issue's not in creation. God doesn't take His creation or other things and tempt us to do the wrong thing. The real issue is found in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lusts, word for desires, his own desires, and he's enticed. Then, when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Our flesh has the capacity to disorder things. And there's two analogies that James uses here. One, hunting and fishing, which I quite understand. And the other, childbirth, which I don't understand, but you ladies do, right? So he's given a man illustration and a woman illustration here, James does. I guess women could hunt and fish. Any of you men tell me that you've given birth, and I'll probably need to give you some counseling afterwards. He says each person is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, he gives this path here. So you've got a beginning point. You recognize something in creation. You've got the desire. You've got the temptation, the enticement. Temptation is not sin. Enticement is not sin. Noticing the glory of God in creation, another person, somebody else's house, whatever it is, is not sin. Being enticed to, to take that for yourself is not sin. That's temptation. When does sin become sin? When it's conceived. When you grasp that. When you take it for yourself. When you misuse it. Temptation, rather than give glory to God and see it as a reflection and give thanks, you grasp it for your selfish pleasure to satisfy self. 
pursue self. The key is self. You dethrone God. And the destination, when sin is full grown, where will that lead you? Ultimately, death or, 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 or separation. So you've got a desire, you've got temptation, you've got conception and, and separation. This is like a road sign. DOT puts up signs that say dead end. And so when you turn down a dead end, you know what's going to happen, and you typically try to avoid those roads. God puts up signs too, and, and here's one. The road of sin's destination is a dead end. It ends in, in death, and you can't turn around once you get there. So James is saying turn around now. Lust is simply misdirected desire because our desires are tainted by sin. And as I said, desire in itself is not, is not evil. The problem is, is within us. Desire which is in our nature is the source. carries us away and entices. To carry away here, here's the hunting term. It refers to a luring trap. Um, the idea of being compelled by, by an inner desire or pushed forward. To be enticed is a fishing term, and it also refers to, uh, to bait. Is the idea of, of, being, of being pulled away. And James says our, our nature allows desire to, to, to push us toward the object. It pulls us away from safety like an animal or, 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 or fish. For an unbeliever, the... The, the bait's too strong. It's too attractive. They just go for it. For us, we, we have the capacity to resist. He takes what is healthy and turns it into, into lust by, by moving its, its aim. I think one of, a really good uh, personification of someone consumed by sin is Gollum in Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about, Gollum? He's a sad fella. I found myself, the first time I watched that, I even cried at one point watching Gollum. Because I, I just saw myself. I really did. I saw myself being bound, being a slave to sin, just like Romans says. And you see how he just, he worships this ring and he calls it my precious. And he'll do anything to hold on to it. And you have this picture of of the, the, the human life. 1 Timothy 6.17, Clay read for us when he talked about covetousness. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So here's the misdirected desire. Don't set your, 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 your hope, your, your, your trust on things, but set it on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's the creation part. He's provided everything for us to enjoy. And, and the rightful scope is focused on God. It's not focused on, you know, on stuff. God has given all things to enjoy. And the moving from a good desire to lust is, is taking that verse and removing the end of that verse and removing the last five words. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay? If, if you kept that the way that it was originally written, that, that's good. There's good desires that, that can flow there. That's part of creation. It's good. But lust comes where it, it X's out God, God who richly provides us with, and it just focuses on everything to enjoy and everything for me to, 
to enjoy. Lust is divorcing the gift from the giver. Lust is disconnecting the purpose of creation for the pleasure of creation. So after that, James changes the metaphor. Verse 14, there's hunting and fishing. Look at verse 15. He goes to childbirth. Then, when desire is conceived, which is a childbirth, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it brings forth death. I can remember being at Cornerstone. And about like this morning, you know, as I said this morning, when your mouth gets ahead of your mind and you're talking. And let me tell you what. You haven't, you, those of you who haven't been a preacher, you, you don't know how, how many words you speak and how easy it is to chase rabbits or say stupid things or say the wrong thing. So, you know, so this is a plug for give us a break, all right? 10,000 words and many words there is, there is transgression. So I'm up there, I'm doing announcements. So I'm already outside of the boundaries of the word where there's, there's guardrails and protections. And this, this young lady that came to Christ probably within the last year, um, third or fourth person that came to the Lord whenever I was at, when I was at Cornerstone, she had her first child. And I said, we just want to give God thanks this morning for this brand new baby that is, and I, and I said her name, has, has, you know, has, and we want to pray that this young child you know, even here in our church, here's the gospel and is raised so they might trust Christ. I said, you know, because all children are born in sin. It's like Martin Luther said to Katie, why, Katie, we've begotten ourselves a heathen. All children are shaping in sin. And let me tell you what, you talk about making a beeline for me after the service. I mean, I was dressed up and down and back up and down again. And she looked at me and she said, don't you call my baby a heathen. My baby's not a heathen. And so we began to, it wasn't the moment to nuance the theological points of, of original sin. It was the moment to say, yes, ma'am, that's not what I meant. You know, I was trying to connect the fact. I wasn't saying anything about your baby, but I'm thinking, but your baby is a, is a sinner. It's your first one, and you wait in 30 days. You're going to be coming back saying, it's a double heathen, right? But that's not what she was concerned about at the, at the moment. Lust gives birth to an ugly baby. And that baby is sin. And if it was ugly at birth, you ought to see that baby when it's full grown. Because it's death. The lust is the mother, sin is the child, death is its destiny. And, and what James is saying is... is is moving from desire to, to lust, from, from recognizing God's glory in creation to, to sinfully grasping that glory for ourselves doesn't just happen any more than babies happen. Sinning, lusting, moving from desire to lust is not like Urkel. You don't sit there and go, did I do that, you know? Yes, you did, and you did some other things in the process. And somewhere along the line, you took what was supposed to be declare God's glory and goodness and you, and you turned it into something for, for yourself. And conception happens by acting on the 
on the desire. I think that there, that there are two things I've said to you so far that you need to constantly remind yourself of. Creation is good. The issue is not what God has made. The issue is not things. And the second thing you need to understand is temptation is not sin. I can't tell you how many guilty consciences that I've dealt with amongst Christians. You know, it's, it's good to have a tender conscience. It's not bad to have a tender conscience. It's bad to have a seared conscience. It's good to have a tender conscience. But I can't tell you how many, how many false guilt issues that people deal with by confusing temptation as sin. Well, I had this thought. You know, well, did you act on it? What did you do with it? No, I just had it. And, it, and I hate having it. That's good that you hate having it. But this is what Paul says in Romans 7. It's, it's indwelling sin. It's, that, it's what remains. It's the hangover from the fall in you. But now as you're saved, you, you hate it. You don't want it. But that's not sin. What is sin? It's when that temptation entices you and you, and, and, and you conceive. You act. You think. You have that attitude. You allow that, that, that offense to not be covered by love, and it turns into to bitterness. Offenses happen, right? I mean, I offend myself a lot of the times. Offenses happen. The issue is not the offense. That's going to happen in the world. The issue is whenever you, whenever you don't deal with that and you don't let love cover or you don't go through them. And then bitterness takes root. The life of sin begins. And once the life of sin forms, if we allow it to grow, it produces this ugly baby that's a murderer at birth. Can you imagine? Now, there's got to be major dysfunction. I don't even know if they're believers. But can you imagine being the parents of that murderer at, at Oregon, getting the phone call that said, your child, you're watching the news and it was your child that killed all of those people? Now, they're, they're dead. God took his life. What a horrible feeling. James says that, that you have murderous babies. <laughs> Every time desire turns to, to lust. And it's a heartache to the parent. The child kills the parent. Um, and so James is trying to help us not ever bring that baby into the, in, into the world. And the moment we move from seeing it wrongly to acting wrongly, a conception happens. Let's use our our beauty concept again, wrong thinking. You see the, the beauty of God in another person and immediately think, wow, they're striking. The fallen state then rises up and said, yes, that is glorious. And I should have that for myself. That's the temptation. The conception stage stages, and I will, and you engage, you fantasize, you compare yourself to them, your spouse to them, whatever it is. The growth stage is then you feed that self-interest, you act on it, you click, you flirt, you compliment, you become immoral, and the destination is death. It's, it's separation. Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. It's an interesting passage. Because it's describing an adulterous woman. But in Proverbs, it's personifying folly. Wisdom and folly. 
There's the way of the foolish and the way of the righteous in Proverbs. The righteous are those who are saved, those who are following after God. The, the foolish are the immoral, the ones that disregard God. They're the unsaved. And so here, folly is personified as a, as a woman. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the, at the doors of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. She spreads a table, sin spreads a table, a banquet in the grave. The path from desire to lust to conception to sin to death leads to Sheol. It's a very graphic picture. She spreads a feast for her prey, and if you follow the path of lust, you'll find yourselves amongst the corpses feeding on the very decay that brings about the death. You feed on the things that will kill you. That's what people who are enslaved to sin do. They, the idols promise them something that they should be looking for from God if they will just worship that idol. Whatever that idol is, money, sex, power, self-esteem, whatever it is, I will give you the very thing that you desire. That's what the idol promises. If you will just worship me, if you will seek me for that other than God, and as that person begins to, to do that, they become enslaved to that idol. And rather than giving them what the idol promised, the idol then demands more and more from them, and they're in the cycle. Spurgeon described it as filling your mouth with ashes. Death brings forth death. Death means separation from all that is good. Separation from joy. You'll not find joy in, in sin, in lust. Separation from other people. Lust and sin will separate you from other people. It's separation ultimately from, from God. What God intended. I mean, think about this. This is the path of lust. Go from creation up to where we are now after the fall in James. What God intended to display His glory so we could enjoy it for our good. He's given us all things to enjoy. When misused, leads to a complete separation from both God and good. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. And that's where it will lead. So what do you do about it? Well, look where James takes us. You have to battle with the words capacity. I find it interesting, after he, after he goes through this, this understanding of where the real issue is. The problem's not God. The problem's not even the testing. It's how you respond to, to the testing. And the issue's within our own hearts. And when, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sins. Look at what he does in verse 16. Look at where he goes. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Well, James gives a picture of, of how temptation takes place. He now points us in the, in the right direction, back in the right direction. 
every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Well, that's where he was saying earlier, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm not tempted by God because God can't be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt himself. But, but look at, look at the, what James focuses on. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creation. He points us to salvation of his own will. He brought us forth in the instrument in salvation. He points us to the word. And then he points us to a better life, the hope that is there, the future that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. James points us back to the good God who loves us. God's not the source of temptation. He's the source of our salvation. Every good and perfect gift. James is saying all giving that is good and everything given that is perfect is from above. That's heaven. God is the source. And so if you put all this together, God has absolutely no responsibility for sin. And God has absolute, complete responsibility for every good thing and every good gift that exists. I mean, there's two extremes that he gives here. So how can we blame him whenever a, a trial comes and we, we choose not to see it correctly? It's not his fault, it's, it's ours. He's the father of lights. It's the, it's the first of two Jewish phrases. Here, the father of lights, and then in verse, into verse 18, he's the first fruits. It's another phrase that's rooted in, in Jewish thought. God's the giver of light. But unlike the sun, the moon, and the stars that can be hidden or fail or one day fade, God is fixed, unchangeable in all of His ways. He never moves. He never changes. So in this battle, he says, don't be deceived. Think about God. Think about the goodness of God. Think about the goodness of God in your salvation. And he points us to the, to the Word. Look at verse... 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the, the righteousness of God. In the context, it's all there about the, the word, the word of, of truth. So the word of truth is in verse 18. That's the instrument that God uses to bring us to salvation. Look at verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, the overflow of wickedness, superfluity of naughtiness. I like saying that. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So you have the instrument of the word in the beginning, and the instrument of the word in the end. And in the middle, between the word that, that God used to begot you, and the word that you're supposed to receive, that's able to save your soul, that's able to, to deliver you from this present age, you've got, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and, and, and slow to wrath. Let every man be quick to hear the word of God. Let every man and woman throw their hand over their mouth and, and let God speak rather than you speak. And whenever you hear what God says, be slow to, to kick against it because the wrath of man doesn't produce the, the righteousness of, of God. The antidote for, for savoring self is, is savoring God. He is much grander 
and so much more glorious in the gospel. So he invites us to taste and see that that he is good. He invites us in salvation to exchange the banquet in the grave for a supper in heaven. Um, TCS, I don't know, how many years ago we did Peter Pan? How many years ago was that? Anybody remember? Two or three years ago. Two years ago? All right, two years ago. Um, there's this moment, in at least in I can remember in the storybook reading it as a kid, where the lost boys are, are, are eating. And I, I think some of the characters are looking and they're like, they're not eating anything. And they're eating it in their imagination. Do you remember that? And then somehow they get to see, they begin to imagine. You know, it's all about the imagination stuff. And then they see there's this big banquet. There's a big feast there. And they're, you know, they're, they're eating all of this, all this stuff that they couldn't see it before. The, the Proverbs picture, someone who's in sin, they, they look there and they think this is such a great banquet. And they're, they're just feeding on it. But a believer... Someone who's in their right mind can see that they're feeding on, you know, on decay. And God promises, even as we were in here, I think it was last Sunday, and we took the Lord's Supper. That's a foretaste of what will happen when Jesus will celebrate with us in heaven the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus can turn us from, from death to life. Look, if you would, and how James summarizes this about the Word. Don't be deceived. You know, look to God. Look to the Gospel. And in verse 21, Therefore, because God's begotten you in the Gospel, and He's used the Word, look back to the Word, lay aside, here's what you do, lay aside all filthiness and all overflow of the wickedness that's in the world in your former life. You, you put off, and then you put on. You receive with meekness the, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I don't know if I have it up here or not. I don't. Write these four words down. Grasp. Heed. Flee. And look. Grasp, heed, flee, and look. I was thinking of how to summarize all of this for myself. I wrote down, grasp not God's glory in creation, but grasp what God has said about creation and this path that, that leads to death. Understand. Heed the warning. I started thinking through the Bible of people that didn't heed the warning of temptation. And you don't get too far out of Genesis, do you? You get to Genesis chapter 4. Don't be like Cain, who received the warning but didn't heed. Don't be like Esau, who received the warning but didn't heed. Don't be like Saul, and I stopped at Saul. I thought that was enough for me. To grasp. What the Bible says, don't grasp God's glory in creation. Heed the warning. And then, and then there's an aspect of, uh, of fleeing temptation. I know you've heard, flee temptation. 
you know, hear it again, flee, run. Um, again, I'm not talking about being a monk. But if you know you, if you know something that you have a propensity toward, but that's temptation to you, don't hang around. If you're if you're a recovering drunkard, don't take a job in a liquor store, right? Don't take a job in a liquor store anyway. But don't put yourself in a position to have to fight a battle that's not there. Now you can try to insulate yourself from the world all you want to, and you'll still fight battles. But don't be stupid about it. Number four, look. I think that's what he, what James is doing here. Look to the giving God. Look to the salvation that God has brought you. And then look to the Word. Keep turning your eyes back to God. And ultimately, you'll kill self. And you'll set your eyes on something greater, which is Jesus Christ. You're hardwired for pleasure. You're hardwired to find something to delight in. Delight in God, which is greater. Not sin, which is, which is lesser. And Jesus is the only one glorious enough to deaden the, the power of sin's pull. And he obliterates sin's glories, which is pleasurable for a season, and outshines them for all eternity. And that's where James puts us. All right? Let me pray for you. And me.